guys. Hey, everybody. I can talk again for now. Uh, last hour, um, I preached for a little over an hour, and so I'm going to try to do less than that, and I'm going to wait the sermon way to the end because I spent most of my time in the beginning, which will produce two sermons online that if you listen to both of them, you can get all of the 12-page sermon. Um, uh, I, I do want to make clear for those of you who are newer, um, the reason why I'm preaching on this today is because we actually put out questions to the congregation. What do you feel like you need pastoral direction on? What are the questions like linger in your mind that are difficult in your Christian faith? What do you need to hear about? And this question of um, people who are other-oriented, who have same-sex attractions or homosexual attractions or who are transgendered or whatever, um, what do we do? Like, how do we think about that? What does the Bible say? What is blah, blah, blah. And um, the, the questions that were turned in and then people voted on what they want to hear. Here's some of the questions that were, that were given in their own words. How do we understand and relate to people of different orientations? How do we address same-sex marriage? How do we respond to the new core decisions about this? Are gays actually welcome at High Point? And what is done to embrace and reach out to them? Um, how do we talk to somebody who says that they are a Christian and a practicing um, LGBT person? And how do we put together gender roles, chan- transgender, and homosexuality within a biblical context? And how does God feel about them? Um, we narrowed that down to a single question, and it was the second most requested of the four that we're doing. Um, I can't say everything there is to say about this, but two years ago, when we were going through 1 Corinthians, I preached on the passage that Lloyd talked about this morning. I did two sermons. I did one on, essentially, heterosexual sexual sin, because that's the main focus of the passage. But then I did a whole sermon on that, on same-sex attraction and homosexuality. Um, That's um, the 6, 10, 12 sermon. But it's also on, we put up a blog this morning that has a bunch of resources related to same-sex attraction, how it's functioning publicly, some stuff about marriage, and so on. Um, For those of you who really feel like you don't have a lot of resources, you don't know which ones to trust, and you don't know where to go. Um, That blog is already up on Engage and Equip. And um, I think the best paper, if you're not familiar with the psychological and scientific literature on this, the Stanton Jones paper, Sexual Orientation and Reason, I think is the best one by a good margin. Um, Also, I wanted to create an opportunity for people to get together and talk about this, but I don't want to do it right after my sermon because if you really care, you might be really emotionally exercised, which actually isn't a good time to talk about things. So this, we're going to do it next Sunday after second service. So you have, you have um, an opportunity to think about it, reflect, go to the blog, read whatever you want to, and then come next week if you actually really want to come rather than on a whim. So I'll be there um, next week after second hour. Um, now I know that there's probably a few people here this morning who really feel like I should just pitch whatever it is I was going to talk about and actually deal with the whole Ferguson thing. And... Um, I understand that, and um, there's two issues there. One is, um, when your spouse is yelling at you about something, that is actually not the time to have the conversation about it, right? However, it is the time to make sure you know what you need to have a conversation about later, and to get that really clear in your mind. This conversation needs to happen. Probably not right this second, because everybody's a little exercised. But once everybody calms down, we need to do this. Now, here's the problem. In the African-American community, that, that logic has no credibility because that, that this has happened a bunch of times and then the conversation never happens. It's kind of like the husband's like, baby, we will talk about that. After we all calm down, we will talk about that. And then the, he never brings it up, right? Until she yells at him about it again and goes, baby, we can't talk about that right now because you're upset, 
but we will, right? So here's how I'm going to try to make this credible. I am going to talk about this January 18th. I'm going to do the fourth um, one in the series on January 18th. I'm going to talk, which is the church in the culture, and I'm going to talk about this as part of that. I do think it's very important, and so I'm going to try to get credibility by giving you an actual date. Hopefully we'll all be calmed down a little bit by then on both sides of the issue, and we can talk about it rationally, and we will talk about it on that day. Um, So back to what we're talking about this morning. Um, I want to give you the bottom line kind of up front so nobody feels like I'm cowardly beating around the bush about what we really think, and because I argue for this for about 25 minutes in the sermon from 6, 12. So so I'm not going to exposit all this today. But ultimately, when you look at all the biblical passages on this, um, what I said in the last sermon, I'll say again, the, the, here's, here's the result, the conclusion. The Bible says what it seems to say about homosexual practice. Um, and that is, I think Graham Cole's summary is pretty good, that homosexual sex is sinful and that homosexual desires are disordered desires. Now, the minute you say that, you have to understand and express the next paragraph, which is this. That all human beings are created in God's image And that sexuality and gender are part of that original sinless creation So both sex and gender precede the fall That is, they're part of God's perfect creation Yet, all humans are in a fallen and disordered condition All humans struggle with a God-given and yet disordered drives and orientations Including sexuality And sexual purity is one of the great battles of every human life So we have a sexuality and gender from God that's part of his original good creation. All of our orientations and faculties and gifts through sin have fallen into a disordered condition. One of the ways, of the many ways human beings fall into disordered condition, according to scripture, is in same-sex attraction. But sexual disorientation happens to every human being. Um, Just ask any married Christian who's been completely living out the biblical sexual ethic of true celibacy and sexual expression within marriage and ask them if what they're experiencing is what they would call full gospel biblical sexual wholeness. And probably pretty much every single person, if they were honest, would say no. Something, it's nice, you know, but it's not what you thought it might be advertised as. It just isn't that. And, um, and when it comes to, when, when we come to realize that, you have to recognize that what heterosexual people are experiencing sexually is still a God-given gender and sexuality that exists in a broken, fallen condition that is being progressively redeemed through the work of Christ and the Spirit. That's everyone. Now, Linda, Linda Seeler, who's a staff worker at Purdue, also somebody who would say herself that she was personally transgendered and had very strong same-sex attractions and doesn't anymore. That's her self-description of herself. One of the ways she describes this is she says, if you were to take 30 wine glasses and drop them onto a tile floor one at a time, how many of them would break? All of them, right? They would all break. How many of them would break identically to any other wine glass that you dropped? Right? The answer is none of them, of course, right? They all break, but none of them break quite the same way. That is one way to illustrate how the sinful condition affects our humanity among all of us. It's one of the reasons why we can be self-righteous and judge each other. 
because we're all broken a little different, okay? Um, now, one of the things that tends to be true of people of more progressive or liberal mindsets is um, they tend to believe that if you don't have personal experience in something, you can't talk about it morally. Now, philosophically, I believe that's false. I, I think that when you have personal experience with something, you're probably more likely not to think about it clearly, ethically, rather than more. Think about it this way. If you were to charge up a hill in a battle, see all your friends get killed around you, make it to the top, finally gather all the people who killed your friends as prisoners of war, and then ask yourself, what should I do with these people? And then you ask another person in an armchair chair in England, if you storm up and people surrender and hand over their weapons and you have them as prisoners, what should you do with such people? Who is more likely to do the right thing? The person with less empathy is much more likely to do the ethical thing. However, when you don't have empathetic experience, you're much more likely to be morally flippant and not think about something deeply and clearly enough so that you will make moral mistakes because you just don't care enough. There's a, there's a lot of truth to that. And so um, I just need, some of you need to know that I have waded through this thing a good bit in my life since about 1995, okay? Um, my first day at university campus, I went to Orientation Express, where the only two things that were really taught in this mandatory exposure to college life was, one, you could have as much promiscuous sex as you wanted to, but best to wear a condom, and you can get them free from your RA. And two, if you did anything but absolutely affirm any expression of same-sex attraction that anybody cared to do, as long as it was among consenting adults, you were a bigoted and terrible person, and you had no business in collegiate life. And that was affirmed the rest of the four years of my experience. Um, in my history classes, we had conversations about how good and important and affirming a gay orientation. In a history class from pre-colonial period to 1865, that somehow was a major topic. The TA instructor that was over me in the class was a not openly gay man who I had actually had a very close relationship with. When I worked at a Christian camp where they assigned same-sex prayer partners when you came on staff, both of the men that were assigned to me one of them immediately expressed his biggest struggle in his Christian life was a very strong same-sex attraction. And he asked for me to pray with him. We talked and had a close relationship. And, um, and the, the other one, the other man I was partnered with had, had a very difficult time telling me until he actually came on to me in a very homoerotic way in a way I didn't actually invite but got to experience, which, which at first was very off-putting. Um, but after I got a chance to sort of reflect on it um, and the Lord dealt with me about it, um, this is a guy who knew how I felt. But this is a guy who so couldn't disconnect filial intimacy between brothers with his personal feelings of sexuality and, and erotic desire that he, he didn't have the self-control as a 20-year-old man to stop himself from trying to engage with me that way. And that sort of keyed me into the level of compassion you need to have when somebody's experiencing that. Um, I went to seminary right after that. I, I became best friends with two guys. I thought immediately both of them were gay. Both totally said they weren't. And then one of them, after a semester, went off to study Foucault in Oxford. I still didn't get it. And then he came back and came out the next 
um, semester, and we've been friends ever since. We've exchanged probably 150 pages of emails back and forth about, because we've always lived remotely from each other, about what this means, and what does intimacy mean, and what does brotherhood mean, and how do we, how do we, how do you deal with loneliness and celibacy, and, um, you know, he would write about his struggles with loneliness. I would write about my struggle with wishing I could be alone, being a family man, and, you know, I saw him last time I was in Colorado. We had, we sat down and talked um, for three or four hours until I was going to miss my plane. Um, And some of you need to know that before you can even hear me talk about this. And I want you to know that I've had many more experiences than that. And I have read a couple thousand pages of the literature on same-sex attraction, homosexuality, and biblical interpretation for two reasons. One, because of the experience that I had in university and how it drove my faith. And two, because I agree with Tim Keller when he says, how we deal with this issue is actually the most important apologetic Christian issue of our time because the secular culture we live in sees it as absolutely the singular watershed moral issue of our time. They think, it's kind of like with very conservative Christians, on this point I would argue just biblical Christians, abortion is kind of a watershed issue. That if you can't get that right, it's really hard to imagine that you get everything else right. Okay, now you might think that's mean, but you can see how that's, that could be thought logically more basic than other ethical decisions, right? For secular people, this is the number one issue. For a lot of them, if you, in their minds, if, you don't, if you're not right on this, you're not right probably on anything. And so if you can't come into this thing and kind of explain where you're coming from, you can't even talk to people who live in the secular city. You can't relate to them. They can't trust you. It's really difficult. Does that make sense? Okay. There were no head nods, so we'll just assume that didn't. Um, The other thing to recognize is that um, it's very difficult for anybody, whether they experience same-sex attractions or not, to just relate to this. The problem is, is that this is caught up in a more than 100-year-long, essentially, philosophical, theological, historical culture war about what is the nature of human beings, what is the nature of how culture should be, what is the nature of how religion and government interact with that, and it is not their fault (laughs) that that's the case. And, um, but two of the things that have come from this cultural war that probably neither side thinks is great, though that may not be true, is one is an enormous over-sexualization of the human person. Like any desi- almost all of our desires can be heightened or lessened based on how we experience and live them out. So for example, have you ever had a situation where you're like, you're in the kitchen and you're eating something and you have no idea how you got there or why that is? Okay, that, that happens to me sometimes. And it, I mean, I've literally been halfway through a banana and been like, why am I eating this? I'm not even hungry. I just don't want to write my sermon right now, right? And it's because I don't have enough disciplinary control over my drive to eat that I have it properly sublimated. And so my desire to just eat whenever I want to is kind of out of control, right? Culturally, our sexuality is way out of control. And because of that, it's hyped up and accentuated and driven such that we even have a stronger physiological response to things that has made us so sexualized that when a Christian stands forward and says, listen, this is what the Bible says about sex. You got two options. Unmitigated lifelong monogamy, total abstinence. That sounds like Jesus wants you to be skinned alive. That's what that sounds like to people, intuitionally. They go, that's 
that's insane. It's so crazy. It doesn't make any sense. How can you even talk like that? And here's why. Because we have made a certain kind of creature a certain way that that sounds crazy. That did not sound crazy for most of the entire history of all of humanity. But it sounds that way to us. And so when people hear a Christian say what the biblical sexual ethic is, it's, it's like they can't even, it doesn't even compute to them. But it's not actually because a Christian sexual ethic is, is inhuman. It's actually because of a relative, situational, temporal, cultural situation that we ourselves have created for ourselves. It's why I don't watch Game of Thrones. The second thing is cultural self-definition. That we have become a cultural culture that does not anymore believe that we have a purpose that we discover for ourselves and live according to, which used to be called the, the development of character. But instead, culture is a place where we define our own being and meaning for ourselves, and we live it out through expression. Um, I, one of the quotes that I think sums this up the best is one, by one of our own Supreme Court justices, Anthony Kennedy. He said this in one of his decisions. Like, he actually wrote this on a screen or on paper. Seriously. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, and of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. That isn't a decision about abortion. What he's saying is, at the heart of liberty is the right for you to decide for yourself whether or not a human being is a human being if it's inside your body. Now, I could have I understood this argument if he had said something like, because we don't have a better, higher authority than you, all we're left with is people making these decisions. And so there's nothing better to do than let people decide these things for themselves, and so that's what we're going to do. That I could say I totally disagree with, but is kind of rational. But this slides through the cultural eye and people shrug their shoulders with it and they say, oh, of course. And if, if you can do that with a human, you certainly can do it with your hormones. You can define what they mean and how they should be used and what their efforts. What this has created for people who have a predominantly homosexual orientation is it has, and they, many of them have not chosen this and don't even like it. It has put them in a place in a cultural tidal wave where they have been partly the beneficiaries of a cultural tidal wave, but also have taken the brunt of the attack against that cultural tidal wave. So they've benefited greatly in terms of what many of them want from disestablishment, sexual revolution, and things related to it. But when conservative people said, we need to stop this, and they aimed their guns at something, same-sex attracted and openly gay people seemed like the best target because they seemed like the most clear aberration of civilization as they imagined it. And so we've kind of aimed our cannons at them, those of us who were in that group, and shot at them. And so as they get to the top of the hill they fought for, not only are they finally triumphant, but they're enormously embattled. They, they feel like they've lost brothers and sisters along the way. They've paid an enormous price to get here, and the people they're now going to take captive have enormously oppressed them. And this is why—listen— I do not believe conservative and included in that conservative Christian fear of the gay movement has anything to do with actual homophobia. I don't believe that at all. I'll get, at the very end of my sermon, I'll get to where I think there's a little bit still remaining. I think it has everything to do with the fear that the oppressed will become the new oppressor. I think it has everything to do with that. And I think the court cases related to gay marriage and discrimination, which there are now 10 or 12 of, 
cake shops and flower shops and something like that. I think there were 12 on the last list I saw. To the point where the government has told Christian business owners not only that they have to pay fines and do things against their conscience, but that they actually also have to be re-educated by the government. Which reminds me of something out of 1984, okay? It's, it's eerie, and it's, create, it's, it's created this antagonism that's going to get worse, and here's, the, here's, here's what I need you to hear about this. Two things. One, it is not the individual same-sex attracted person you meet's fault that that's the case. It's not their fault. It, you cannot treat them like that. You have to treat them convictionally. We don't get to treat people however we want. We have to treat people as God sees them convictionally so they are created in God's image, loved by God. God wants them drawn into his redemptive purposes. We are to serve them sacrificially and so on and so on and so on. You understand that? It's true that there's this cultural tidal wave and this is all happening and the gay movement has kind of ridden the top of it and we've shot back and forth and there's this big thing and it's going to get worse and that's all going to be pretty terrible probably unless we learn how to be civil with one another and it is not John Richardson's fault or Sarah Evans's fault that that's the case. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, in light of that sweep, the biblical sexual ethic is completely diametrically opposed to the cultural values in which we live. And we're going to have to realize that convictionally and learn to live that out beautifully. Okay? Now, usually what's stated when preachers talk about this passage, what they usually say, and I agree with this kind of, is they'll say there's two things to take from 1 Corinthians 9 related to same-sex attraction and homosexual orientations. One is that it's sin. Which is right. It does. It says that. And the second is that they, can, that they can change Because it says that's what some of you were Right? Those are the two things to take from this passage I, I kind of disagree with that Let me tell you why It does say That homosexual sex is sinful It does say that Okay However, what you, it's very important to notice Is that it is normalized to all sin And it is stated in context to the evil of us suing one another that's how this passage starts. He says, here's how I know that you've been completely spiritually defeated. Not that you're for gayness. He says, here's how I know how you've been, you as a church have been totally spiritually defeated. You're suing each other in courts. <laughs> He's like, you could get a seven-year-old who believes in Jesus, and you could tell him your dispute, and he can sort out what the right thing is to do. It, it does not take a genius. And yet, you are not spiritually mature enough or knitted together enough as a spiritual community to figure out what to do with your disputes, and so you're dragging Jesus' name through the garbage dump so that you can get what you think you deserve because you were hurt. And because you'd rather destroy the name of Jesus publicly than be wronged yourself, I know spiritually you're totally defeated, right? That's the context. And then he says, don't you know when you behave like that, the wicked— will not inherit the kingdom of God. I actually don't like the NIV 11 translation. And here's why. You might say, but Nick, the wicked, that sounds so judgmental. Yes, but here's why that phrase is actually kind of important. Because the wicked in the Bible is a semi-technical phrase. It refers to people who have a chosen a directed lifestyle of unrepentant pursuit of a particular thing. One, one place to see this in the Bible very clearly is to read Psalm 1. Right? In Psalm 1, there is the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. 
That is, people who live by faith toward God to serve and love Him and to do what they were created to do, and those who could care less and are going to do how they've self-defined their own lives. The wicked is a relatively technical phrase, not of somebody who oops is greedy, or oops steals something, or commits some kind of sexual sin. It refers to those who choose to intentionally, dramatically, specifically, and unrepentantly pursue that lifestyle in contradistinction to what God commands. In, in the NIV 11, it says, those who are wrongdoers. I think that's totally the wrong sense. So therefore, when the question is, well, wait a second. So wait, Nick, you said they couldn't change or something. You were getting at something like that. Okay, I'm not saying people with same-sex attractions can't change. I'll talk about that in a little bit. What I'm saying is this passage doesn't promise it, and you should already know that if you just pay attention to the text. Right? Because if this passage proved that people with same-sex attractions, when they get saved, justified, washed, and so on, they change and don't have same-sex attractions, you would have to believe that you were going to hell. And here's how I know that if you're a Christian. When you became a Christian, did you all of a sudden experience total internal spiritual purity so that you never lost it after anybody ever again or whatever? Right? Ellen's the only one who didn't experience that. And me. And me. Right? I mean, like, no, you didn't. You were still an internal pervert. You just had a new demand, right? You just had a new, like, what changed was, what it says up there, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. What changed was there was a new king over those desires, the Lord Jesus, right, the King Jesus, and there was a spiritual empowerment to live like Jesus is king rather than your drives and orientations are king. That's what changed. You were morally washed, right? You were sanctified, meaning you were taken out of one use and you were put into a new use. You belong to King Jesus now, not to your desires and orientations, whatever you want to do. And you were justified. You were counted right in God's sight, right? Under the name or rule of King Jesus and with the power of spirit, which means all your desires and mis- broken orientations, whatever wine glass you are, that brokenness is under the rule of Jesus and the power of his spirit so that it no longer rules you. And you have then engaged in a lifelong pursuit of purity instead of sexual sin, a lifelong pursuit of generosity instead of greed, a lifelong pursuit of producing through work rather than stealing. It doesn't mean that you don't want to steal from people, that you don't envy, that you don't like. It doesn't mean that. What it means is you have been turned from the lifestyle and the path of the wicked to a path where you've been set apart, justified, and made to follow Jesus and been given the power to do so so that all of your disordered desires remain, but they no longer reign, to quote John Wesley. Now, over time, many of us have experienced changes in those desires, more control over my sexual urges, more of an ability and desire to be generous rather than to be stingy. And sometimes that fluctuates a little bit. Over time, I have seen changes in my inner desires and drives and orientations. But I have never become not an internal adulterer. That's never happened to me. Or philanderer. What's changed is my ability to live for Jesus instead of that. And if you apply that to the, quote, homosexual offender, right, what that would have to mean if we're consistent and not hypocritical in our interpretation is that they receive a new king and a new power, not necessarily a different orientation, certainly not immediately. 
This passage doesn't prove that. And the good thing about that is just another case where the Bible is absolutely in line with the best science. Okay, I gotta keep moving here. Okay, one more quick thing on this, and I spend more time on this if you listen to the first recording. This passage, in a much more touchy way, actually talks about why sexual sins of all kinds, and therefore homosexual sin in particular, is wrong. It doesn't just tell us that it is, it actually tells us why. Which includes, and I'm only gonna spend a minute on this, it's not what we were meant for. Our body has a teleology, a design, not just an instrumentality, what we can do with it. And we are morally responsible to do with our body what it was designed for, not just what it can do. Secondly, is our, member, our bodies are members of Christ himself. Part of the doctrine of the union of God with the believer, that the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, that there is a union with Christ, it means any sin that you and I commit, we drag Jesus' name and in some sense his presence into it which has nothing to do with homosexuality. It has everything to do with how you and I look at sin. Do you look at sin like that when you yell at your spouse or you treat your kids in a certain way or you treat your coworkers in a certain way or you treat somebody at school a certain way? When you act in a way that you know is sin, do you think about the fact that you are dragging Jesus, in some way the presence of Jesus into your sin? And that ought to create a greater wonder in the gospel for you about how grateful you are towards God. Because Jesus didn't just die for your sins. He, he didn't just pay a cross price for you. He paid a union price for you. Because he knew darn well what you were going to be like after you accepted him. And after he came into union with you. And he knew that. And there is a, some kind of divine cost to that. I can't talk about the rest of this. You'll have to listen to the thing. So then the, the pastoral question then is, okay, so on the basic pastoral questions, how do we live this out faithfully? Um, some of you have heard me say this before. I think that the human body is a good metaphor for our manner. So some really kind of fundamentalist Christians, the fight and fundies, right? They're like crabs. They're like really hard on the outside. Like their skeleton is out here and they're going to get you. And they're like, you could hit a crab and not crush it. And you're like, man, you're kind of tough. But you're also, nobody wants to hug you, right? They just want to boil and eat you, right? It's maybe too close a metaphor. Anyway, the point is that that's, we're not meant to be like that. But the other thing is to just not be tough, to just be a slug. Everybody just pushes you around. You just accommodate. You can't stand up to anything, right? Think about the metaphor of the human body. The skeleton is on the inside. So we have the capacity to hold and love and nurture, and we're soft, and we can hug, and all this kind of stuff. There's all kinds of stuff that we can do physically that's nice. But if somebody's like, oh, you're soft, I bet I can push you around, and they, and they, they get past that quarter or half inch or 14 inches of soft— and they find bone under there, right? I think that's what a convictional Christian is like. When people run into us, they feel a certain amount of compassion, love, softness, if you like. There's something that doesn't hurt. But if they think that because we're empathic and because we love people, that they can use our empathy and love for them to manipulate us into accepting propositions that we believe are false, they've got another thing coming. And we are okay with living in the tension of I believe this is true, and I'm called to love and serve you sacrificially, and I'm okay with working that out in tension, even if you're not. Now, the four pastoral questions are these. The first is, 
is same-sex attraction a choice? There's a lot of people that ask me. Now, some of you who went to university, you're like, that's totally not, that's a stupid question. Listen, people, a lot of people ask this question. In fact, people with same-sex orientations come into my office and ask me that question, who themselves have same-sex attractions. It's not passe to any succeeding generation. And I, here's the thing. I don't think that that's the right question. I think the right question is, is it a conscious choice? Not is it a choice, but is it a conscious choice? Because here's the thing. So I was speaking in California two weeks ago, and we were driving home, and it was this really windy road, and one of the kids threw up, and it was—and and I got—we get to this place, and I went to get out my wallet because I was going to pay for lunch, and I couldn't buy my wallet, and I was like, oh, stink. I can't find my wallet. And I was like, Stan, I left my wallet. The thing, and I, he said, are you sure you brought it with you? I said, yes. I said, look, I said, I can see it in my head. Picking it up off the table and putting it in my backpack so I wouldn't forget it. So I, it was, I knew it was in this backpack. It's not here right now. I don't know where it is, right? He's like, well, there's no sense in driving an hour back now. If they find it, they'll find it. If they don't, they don't. Let's just go back to the right. So we get back to the house. I go into my room that I was staying in Stan's house, and there's my wallet. And here's what you need to know about your life. You have thousands of memories that are not just propositional, like sentences you remember, or, or word descriptions, but are actually pictures in your mind, video, that your mind made up, okay? When I was an undergrad, we would, we would interview people in their 70s and 80s about their experiences when they were young to just do history, right? I was a history major, and we would, we would interview people, and they would talk about, oh, I remember when they dug that quarry, and we used to roast hot dogs down there and shoot fireworks when I was 17, and blah, 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 right? And you'd be like, oh, that's a beautiful story. You write all the notes down, right? But then as historians, we had to go and check, right? And we'd find out that, like, she was 17, and this year the quarry wasn't dug for 10 more years. And, like, it was—but in her mind, it was so clear. And that's not, not just old people. That's us, everybody. There is, there is just no—when was your—how old were you with your first real memory, which may not even be real, right? I'm like seven in mine, right? And so, so here's the thing. I think that the scientific evidence actually points towards same-sex attraction for the majority of people, not all of them, but for the majority of people being produced in a child's development. However, as far as I can tell, it can develop in a number of different ways that's very difficult to control, very hard to anticipate, and has nothing to do with the conscious choice of children or their parents. And here's why I think that. Because you're like, well, why would you think that? Well, here's why. Because we spent a couple hundred million dollars now on studying homosexuality, and we still have not found an inborn cause for it, right? So that was either money very badly spent or a question with a very difficult answer, right? Now, in the, in the most recent twins registry study of twins where they study one identical twin, if one identical twin is gay, is the other gay, which was done in Sweden, which is a very gay-accepting culture, maybe the most gay-accepting in the world— the correlation if one twin was gay, the other was gay, was only 10%. Now, most of you probably remember 50% from the LeVay study in 93 or 92. I can't remember now. It's not. That's never been replicated scientifically. And in the ones that have more scientific samples, it's much lower, as low as 10%. And, that, and these are kids with identical genetics, lived in the same home, had upbringings with the same parents. <laughs> and yet, you got one gay, you got only 10% of the other one's gay. It is a crapshoot, okay? And the people who experience same-sex attractions have, there is no connection to any conscious choice for the vast majority of them. Now, there are some people, especially some 
or feminist lesbians that have actually written publicly that they chose to become lesbian. But it's a fairly small group of people, and it's almost always women. For some reason, women's sexuality is just more fluid than men's. I don't know why, okay? But it's important to recognize that because in that sense, you still can believe that it's developmental, but that it's really not anybody's fault, which I think is probably true. The second is, is change possible for same-sex attracted people? The reason why I think this is important is, A, I get asked all the time by same-sex attracted people and non-same-sex attracted people. And the other reason is almost everything that you've heard publicly about this is actually false. Sort of. The short answer to can same-sex attracted people change is yes for some, but most do not experience change. Now, notice I did not say change isn't possible. I just said most don't experience change because how do we know something different that we could try wouldn't work? We don't ever know that, right? You have to be scientific about this. What we do know is most people who engage in it do not experience change or not enough change that they feel themselves as though they can function heterosexually, okay? Now, however, there are lots of people who have experienced predominant same-sex attractions who function very well heterosexually later. Now, why is that? And then other people who just can't move at all. Just, just no change at all, no matter what they do. Um, why is that? And, and the, here's the, the best reason. And, and now you look at me like you're puzzled, like, Nick, I thought nobody changed. Here's the thing. Can you imagine if you had had predominant same-sex attractions and you really went through a process where you really did change and you were functioning perfectly happy in a heterosexual way? Could you imagine coming out publicly and saying that in this cultural climate? When I have talked to people, and there are a number of them in this church, about that, would you be willing to do a testimony? Would, would you want to talk to high school students? The, the, the look of fear in their eyes of what might happen to them personally if they were to do that um, tells me everything I need to know about this. Um, however, okay, let me explain this and I'll go back to something else in just a second. Um, Stanton Jones, when he did, he's, the, he's one of the provosts at Wheaton in psychology. When he went to the University of Arizona, he studied under a woman who was both a sexuality expert and a depression expert. And he went to study depression, but when, because he studied under this woman, he actually sort of became an expert in both. And when he, they were studying depression, here's what they found. They found that there were lots of people in the American public who got depressed, who experienced depression and sought counseling for it. But what they found was that the phenomenon of depression was stronger and weaker, depending on the person, and the reason they were depressed that the counselor could figure out varied widely, right? Some people lost a loved one. They had trouble dealing with it. They felt very depressed. Other people, there was like a bona fide chemical imbalance. Like there was just something going on in the brain and they had needed medication. Other people were deeply unhappy with their lives. They feel like it, it wasn't turning out like they wanted to or their marriage wasn't good. And it caused an overall long-term depression. Now, what they found then was you can get in human beings a very physiological, very deeply felt, very driven personal phenomenon that actually arose for completely different reasons. One of the reasons I believe a bunch of very intelligent people have spent many millions of dollars to try to figure out how homosexuality happens and have not been able to do it, I think is because there is no such thing as homosexuality. There are only homosexualities, and we have no idea how many. And I think that's one of the reasons why some people find it very easy to change, and other people find it nearly impossible. 
A person who isn't happy with their marriage and depressed, if you can fix their marriage over time, they get happier about it. People who have a chemical imbalance, you can counsel them all day, and they don't get better. And so depending on the provenience of the same-sex attraction affects dramatically whether or not somebody is capable of change. Now, the reason why this is important is for two reasons. One is you need to understand why people in the pro-gay movement are so adamantly against any kind of therapy for anyone with same-sex attractions to change even if they deeply want that therapy, which is the only people to whom it's provided in America. Now, not true in the past. Here's why, for two reasons. One is the methodology that was used historically in America was pretty barbaric. What's normally, what's normally quoted was, um, was a therapy um, done in the Mormon West with gay men that used very strong electric th- shock therapy that amped up the longer the same-sex attractions existed. And the suicide rate for gay men especially um, who engaged in reparative therapy is what it's called, or or reparative therapy, was higher than the population of gay men in general. And so the feeling was, um, it doesn't work and people kill themselves. How mean do you have to be? How heterosexually biased do you have to be to keep doing this? Okay, it makes people enormously unhappy, it doesn't work, and people kill themselves. So the the latent fear within the gay community is, their, son, their sons and daughters, will, some of them are going to kill themselves, right? Now, what this has produced is a climate in which the therapies for this, which are essentially in the Stone Age, can't advance. That's what this has produced. So same-sex attracted people in America who wish to engage in actually useful reparative therapy that actually works— are engaging with a psychological community that is doing virtually no research in this and doing nothing to advance in their capabilities, which scientifically is enormously hypocritical because when science can't do something, what does it always tell us? We just need a little more time and money, right? We'll figure this out. It's just need time and money. That's all. We'll do more research. We'll do more experiments. We just need time and money. We'll figure this out. Trust in science. And yet— In this case, the answer is absolute censorship. Do not pass go. Do not collect grant money. You cannot study this. You cannot do this. We will take away your license. It's illegal in California. Right? And I think we need to understand why the LGBT community is terrified of any kind of therapy that would help people change their sexual orientation if they want to receive that therapy. We need to understand that. And at the same time, Um, Freedom. I think people should be free to seek what they wish, especially if we're going to be a pluralistic and liberal society. Otherwise, I think it's just hypocrisy, and I think it's morally wrong. Let me say one more thing on that. But what that means is when you engage with a same-sex attracted person who believes in Jesus, or who doesn't, you cannot have this default that, like, if you follow Jesus, you're going to flip. That's not true. It might be true. It's not necessarily true. And it doesn't actually matter for whether or not they can follow Jesus. The third is, what do I do when I'm invited to a same-sex wedding? Um, Now that 
this has kind of gone through the courts and it doesn't look like the Supreme Court's going to take it up. It's legal. Same-sex weddings are legal in Wisconsin. It looks like they're going to be pretty widely legal. I expect them to be legal most everywhere. I expect our church to get sued in the next 15 years. I do expect us to lose our building in the next 15 years. Uh, We'll just do church a different way. Um, We'll see. However, um, the, the question I think for the Christian is this. When you go to a wedding, what are you doing? Okay, now you can try to keep it vague and say, well, we're just loving the people. But that's actually not what you do when you go to a wedding. Okay, now I'm assuming that I'm assuming a Christian wedding. Okay. Um, what you do when you go to a wedding is you do three things. One, you witness the marital vows. In witnessing the marital vows, you affirm that what is happening is a wedding and therefore creating a marriage. And third, you are promising to spiritually interact with that as a upholder of that union as conjugal marriage, right? And in doing so, you are celebrating. It's a celebration, right? It's a, it's a wedding. Weddings are celebrations. That's why we dress up, right? Now, here's the thing. I do not know how with any integrity someone can go to something that they witness its validity, implicitly affirm its validity, and celebrate it. I don't see how you celebrate something without affirming it. I just don't, I think that's an incoherent idea. I think, I think the statement, Bill celebrated but did not affirm X, is an incoherent statement, okay? I don't see how you can do that. And I don't believe biblically that you can believe that a gay marriage is actually a marriage. Now, it is something, and we should affirm it as something. There are goods in two people uniting with each other and taking responsibility for each other and saying that they're going to care for each other and be by each other's bedside. And there are moral goods within that union. But the label of the union itself as a marriage, especially from a Christian perspective, is a falsehood. And therefore, I do not see how a Christian can witness, affirm, and celebrate as part of the, Christi- as part of the wedding. You might be able to go to the reception. Um, and some, some people have asked me, Nick, what if it isn't Christian? Because I, where I'm really strong on this is if it's in a church— being done by a minister with Christian language. That's where I'm really strong on this. Now, if you say, well, it's a civil union, it's out in a park, some guy in overalls is going to do it. Um, like, I don't, I don't think it's going to be religious at all. There's no religious content. I don't know if I would go, but if you came to my house and asked me about it, I'd probably say, you're going to have to make a decision about that. Does that make sense? That those are somewhat different? Um, I don't think I would change my mind, but my adamance, my clarity of thinking would be very different. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, And you probably need to know that I will will go to jail before I do a same-sex wedding. You should know that. And I'll be nice about it. And you'll be responsible to take care of my family if that happens. I'm dead serious about that. Dead serious about that. You will be responsible to take care of my family if for any reason I act out of conscience and am put in prison. Okay. Um, 
Should I or we be more politically active in fighting the whole gay rights thing, especially gay marriage? Um, people ask me that a lot. I have a lot of people um, come to me from the conservative side of things. Nick, here's this thing, this printout I got from these people. Um, fewer people from the more liberal side of things, but I get the Wisconsin Council of Churches stuff all the time. Hey, why don't you guys be part of this? And um, one, I'm going to talk about the church and society January 18th. Okay? This is a small part of that. Two, I think the majority of our effort should be used in terms of pro-life because I don't think it's close at all the moral place of extinguishing human lives and people having same-sex weddings. I don't think those are close at all. And I'll just tell you this. If I sat down with President Obama, and President Obama said this to me, okay, like I was like Mitch McConnell or something, and he goes, listen, I'll give you no-fault divorce if you give me gay, gay weddings. Like, we'll get rid of the no-fault divorce laws so that it'll be very difficult to get out of a marriage, so that people will have to take marriage enormously more seriously, and the person who least cares about the wedding, about the marriage, won't have the easiest way out anymore. But you have to give me gay marriage. I would do that in a second. A second. I would say I still don't agree with the truthfulness of it, but politically, yes. Because pro-gay people are right when they say, how can you be so big on being against gay marriage when divorce is so rampant within Christian culture? Now, it's about 25% less rampant in evangelical culture. People who read the Bible and go to church more, twice a month or more. It's actually not near as rampant among evangelicals as outside the evangelical church. That's just a fact. However, you know, a 24-something percent divorce rate is higher than zero. And I, I believe that that's a much bigger focus. And helping, helping um, demographics that don't marry is societally much more important than resisting gay marriage, in my view, okay? So, but we'll deal with that another time. Second thing, if, if we're going to live in a pluralistic, liberal culture, which we are, we are going to have to advocate for freedom for all people. And so, I believe that we have to advocate, just like I've said when we talked about praying for the persecuted church, I've said, listen, you, can't, you need to pray for Christians who are being persecuted in Pakistan. You need to do that because they're your brothers in Christ. But listen, you also have to pray for the Baha'is that are being jailed in Iran. They're people who, as human beings, have a God-given right to freedom of religion and conscience. Right? This is how this relates to this, right? If we believe in freedom of conscience such that we let people sin all the time, and the only time we stop that is when they are not having a negative effect on other people, because you could argue we shouldn't have trash pickup once you go down that road of logic. You have to say we stop people when they specifically and directly attack another person's well-being. Directly, right? Very hard time arguing that against gay marriage. But you also have to say yes, and you have to allow for freedom of conscience. You have to. And those have to stand side by side with each other, and you have to find a way to affirm them both. Listen, if our country affirms freedom of conscience in the number one most important duty of a citizen, which is, anybody want to take a guess? Number one most important civil duty of a citizen, that as a citizen you must do this. Anybody? Go to war. Go to war. If you are part of a polis, a group of people organized politically together for your mutual well-being, 
the number one most immediate responsibility of the citizen is to defend that people from outside annihilation if you are called upon to do it fairly. And yet, for the entire history of our country, we have allowed for conscientious objection. If somebody says, listen, I do not believe it is right in any circumstance to take a life. I am a pacifist. Can I have another thing to do? Right? And during things like World War II and the Vietnam War, we put those people in mental institutions to serve there, and in the other things, we put them places, and we said, yes, we didn't kill them. We didn't put them on the front line so they'd get killed right away so they could pay for their pacifism. We allowed for freedom of conscience. We figured it out. And I believe we can figure out civilly and through the exertion of godliness publicly a way for us to be a blessing to all people in a way where we are unhypocritical and completely consistent and agree and consent with our neighbors to live in a strange union with each other. And we're going to be doing that for a while, looks like. And I also don't think that we should not be involved in any issue politically because people bully us to shut up. Now, I don't know exactly what the appropriate level of public engagement in politics is for a church. I don't really know that. I'm still working through that. I've been working through it for 20 years. However, I believe that right now, the idea is, you, if you're a Christian, you can be involved in political exchange and advocacy if and only if your views are right, and the views that are right are predominantly now blue. Now, when I was in college in the 90s, it was the other way. You should shut, you should shut up if you're a Christian, if you're a Democrat. But if you're in the moral majority or the Christian coalition, then let's go for it. Now it's the opposite, frankly. And in both cases, I don't believe that we should make our decisions based on how people intellectually and emotionally bully us. We should be making it on a conviction of what it means to live faithfully in the city. And we should sort that out, and then we should act that way. Does that make sense? Okay, so now that we've been doing this for 53 minutes, a few— now here's the heart of the sermon, okay? Um, the, all the doors are unlocked if you feel like you really have to go, okay? I think this is important, though. The question is, okay, now with a same-sex person, how do I as a Christian faithfully interact with them? What do I actually do or don't do as I relate to people in my circle of influence who are same-sex attracted? So here's the things y- you should do, okay? One is just don't be wildly ignorant about the subject, okay? That's why we produced the blog, I think if you go through some of that stuff, you listen to the sermon a couple of times, and the one we did a couple years ago, it probably will get you in a place where you won't see something ridiculously stupid, okay? Two, even though LGBT people in some senses have been a cultural adversary for people who are Bible-believing in a lot of ways, you can't treat them that way. Either as individuals or as a group. If you're not willing to turn the other cheek, so to speak, I didn't mean that. I didn't mean to make that rhyme. Um, or if you're not willing to, when your enemy asks for your coat, you give him your shirt too. You can't be a Christian, okay? You you have to at least be trying to figure that out. And I know that sounds like being cultural doormats, and there are points where behind the flesh there needs to be bone. Yes, but. You cannot treat your enemies like enemies. But here's the thing. That doesn't mean they're not your enemies. They may, in some sense, be your enemy. You don't have to pretend that's not true. You still have to love them. 
Jesus didn't say, pretend your enemies aren't your enemies. He said, love your enemies. Yes, they're your enemies. They may want to, you got to find a way to love them. Third is, don't treat other orientations as more disordered or homosexual sex as more sinful than your disordered orientations or more sinful than other sins. If, see, a lot of you, I say that because a lot of people in the church, resist a fully biblical notion of depravity, that we're sinful so deeply, so broken, so in need of God. But if you don't believe that, you can't love gay people. You will be self-righteous. There's no way around it. You have to be sensible of your depravity and their worth, and vice versa. The fourth is, don't act like we know that much about same-sex attraction from the Bible or science. For all the studying that we've done, and for the few things that the Bible says, the Bible, it's like six passages. It basically says, this is part of sexual immorality. It's immoral. What you hear about sex in the Bible is true about this too. That's it. And then in science, we've spent all this time, all these decades, all, we still know very little. Let's not pretend like we know everything, like we have all the answers. Nobody does. But if somebody else, some secular person comes in and says, asks like they have all the answers, they're lying or they're ignorant. I'm just telling you. Most people don't know what they think they know. They've listened to Time magazine. They've heard a few things along the way. The press doesn't correct itself. That's just the nature of the public press. It's not really their fault, though it totally is. Um, It's just the way the culture is. And so things don't get corrected. And so we believe these false overstatements. And when people think they know a lot about this, they don't. They don't. Almost every study in the 90s and the early 2000s that you think you know what it says, almost none of them were able to be replicated. They were all overstated, almost without exception. And what we actually know is much different than you think. Okay? And that's true for Christians. Human beings just don't know that much about this. Everybody. Okay? Do. Here are things to do. One is offer non-condescending compassion. When you went to college, if you went to college, you were probably told that somewhere between 10 and 20% of the American public was gay or latently gay. That's totally false, okay? The, the largest number resembling reality is 3.5%, but that includes everybody who is same-sex attracted and everybody who's bisexual. Because if you're bisexual, you have same-sex attractions, right? So if you count everybody who has same-sex attraction, it's 3.5%. But a full half of those people are fully functionally bisexual. They could easily date somebody of the opposite sex, just as easily somebody of the same sex. It's totally fine. They could do that if they wanted to. So actually, stably, specifically same-sex attracted people, it's 1.7% of the population, right? And so all the people who are a little afraid that everybody's going to take over, they go, oh, but here's the problem. Well, here's what that means. Same, specifically, predominantly same-sex attracted people are an incredible minority. Do not mistake public clout for personal community and inclusion. Right? There are a lot of people in our culture that we pay great lip service to and then fully exclude. How many people here are pro-poor? This is participatory. Who's pro-poor? Anybody? Six of us. Okay, I quit. All right, I quit High Point Church. Right? Hopefully all of us are on some level pro-poor, right? Yeah, I mean, but do they even think we are? Like, they don't, I mean, they don't think we are. Right? And See, there's, there's lots of people we go, oh, that's great, or that's fantastic, or I'm for them. And here's the thing. No, we're not. We are, but they don't get included. But here's the thing you need to know about same-sex attraction. They are this, they are a very tiny minority. You don't think that they feel embattled. They do. 
Just, just get on the website, go to the UW gay lesbian thing and go to one of their poetry readings and just listen to them. Don't say a word, just listen. And what you will hear are people who feel embattled and bullied and broken and pushed around and hurt. That's how they feel. And, if, and so you have to be able to offer a non-condescending real compassion. The second is, you need to ha- offer a balanced and truthful theology, which is what this whole sermon and the other one was about, so you'll have to listen to those. Three is, you need to see the similarities of your struggles against sin to connect with, but also don't minimize the differences. So with my friend, um, when we got together and talked, we both talked about our struggles with, um, with sexual sin and with purity. We both have them. They're very profound for both of us. And yet, then he talked about his struggle with loneliness and my struggle with wanting to be alone. Totally opposite. And so when we're interacting with people in friendship, we have to recognize there's some similarities. We can connect on those similarities, but we also need to be ready to be told, my experience is different from yours. And then we have to be soft on the inside, hard on the, soft on the outside, hard on the inside when we engage with those. Four is um, offer family inclusion. And okay, can I offend you for just a second? Okay. Th- I know this statement I might make may not be true. Okay. This is an intuition of mine, and it may be false. Okay. I feel like the last vestige of heterosexual homophobia in the general evangelical church may be the belief that gay men and women, particularly gay men, because their orientation, we look at it as a kind of perversion of the sexual self, and because we do, on some level, think of it as differently, we're actually afraid that there will be some kind of perverted relationship with, with boys and children. I think there is some of that. I think there's a sense of like, well, we need to be protective and we don't, and I know where that comes from. That comes from like our own depravity. It comes from the fact that the early gay male movement in the 80s had a, I mean, Foucault was a pedophile and he argued for why that was okay. Like it has a complicated history. Here's the problem. Everybody's a pervert. Every parent has to protect their kids, okay? If I come to your house, there's a level that every parent should still protect their kids. And yet, create an open and loving space in which all kinds of people come in and out and bless and teach and act and mess up and so on in a way that we still watch over the nurture and admonition and care of our children. And see, if you don't get over, if we don't get over that, then we cannot invite all people into the shalom, the peace, the love and justice of the family. And we're, and we're creating them not in vain, but percentagely in vain. 30% or something of what they're meant for we're not doing. And God puts single people, especially people who are single long-term, in families, not just, not just in friendships, but in families. And who, if they're trying deeply to be faithful to Christ, is going to be the most long-term single celibate person? It's going to be the same-sex attracted person. And if there's no familial hospitality, we, we, we're not, we won't be who we have to be. Lastly, we need to give and interact. I, I believe, I agree with Wesley Hill, who wrote, he's, uh, he wrote the best, um, I'm a gay evangelical, let me tell you about a book that I know of. And he's writing a book right now on friendship because his argument is the evangelical church, yes, yes, all of culture is losing its understanding of marriage and what it really is, but what we've already totally lost is a theology of friendship. In 1980, John Boswell, who was a going-to-mass-every-day gay Catholic, uber-liberal, studied at Yale, went to Mass every day, okay? He was trying to deal with this whole thing, and he found this rite in the medieval church called the, it's called the Andelphophilios or something like that. I can't remember the Greek for it. 
but it was this rite in which two men came to the church for a union ceremony. And he said, look, the church hasn't always been anti-gay. There was a time when the church had its own gay man marriage celebration. And he wrote this whole book about it, and people were like, this is kind of interesting. It's, it's totally wrong, okay? But you could almost get how he got that, right? Like, how weird would it be for you if we had a, a service at High Point, right? Where like Nick and Taya would come up here and we would do like this ritual where they would essentially be blood brothers. They would have a friendship the rest of their life where they were bound by honor and duty before God to be there for each other in every moment. They could not break the friendship. The friendship would endure. It was, it was almost similar to marriage, right? You could understand if this culture, people just assumed that was somehow homoerotic, Right? And yet, the church for hundreds of years had the Philadelphias, the brotherly love ceremony, where men would commit themselves in covenantal friendship, unbreakable before God and each other, with each other, that they would always take care of each other, always fight for each other, always be with each other. And it didn't always have military overtones. And that's how the church understood friendship. And I would argue that the single people in our church. And remember, the news, I don't know if you saw the news, just this last week I read a news source that said half of the American adult public is single. That was not true 20, 30 years ago. It was like 20%. Half of the American adult, of American adulthood is single. And if we don't have a doctrine and practice of biblical friendship that is deeply covenantal and driven, what, you see the problem? It's a huge problem. And this isn't just about same-sex attraction, but it is the primary loving service we should be offering same-sex attracted people. Covenantal, familial, hospitable, deep friendship. And non-sexually incredibly intimate friendship. And especially of the sex they have trouble getting along with. Have you seen, you've seen gay men who have lots of women friends? Not a lot of male friends, right? What, what most gay men need desperately is an incredibly intimate, non-sexual male friendships. I mean, God bless the wo- you, women, but this, they need that. It's very important. And um, we have to recapture that as a whole church, and then it will greatly bless and benefit our same-sex attracted brothers, sisters, children, friends. Let's pray. Father, um, yeah, I probably said more than people wanted to hear, and it's, we still didn't talk about half the issues related to this, and um, we pray, God, that you would just, you would make us more faithful, that we would see more, that we would be obedient to more, that we would be more loving and more compassionate, more empathetic, um, more wise, more biblically focused, more, uh, we just, we Father, we want to be more substantive. We want to be deeper. We want to be more loving. We just want to be more like Jesus. That's the shorthand for all this, Father. We want to be more like Jesus. Would you please help us? Pray in Christ's name. Amen.